Welcome to the Mark Sterry Music Podcast. This podcast is an audio journal of my guests and I's adventures throughout the live and local music biz. Fun conversations, cool tunes, and good times will be had. My name is Mark Sterry, and I'm a 15-plus year veteran of the Twin Cities, Minnesota metro music scene. Check me out at Mark Sterry, that's S-T-A-R-Y music.net. Also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. My new album, White Knuckle Life, as well as my other original records, are available for download Download on iTunes, CD Baby, etc. This podcast drops every Tuesday, if not before, on iTunes, SoundCloud, and most other places podcasts are available. If you enjoy it, please subscribe on iTunes. It's totally free and guarantees you'll never miss an episode. Also, consider helping get the word out in the street via social media, five-star rating and review on iTunes, word of mouth, etc. Happy Thought of the Day is by Keith Richards. If you don't know the blues. There's no point in picking up the guitar and playing rock and roll or any form of popular music. Thanks for tuning in and welcome to the Mark Sterry Music Podcast. Enjoy! Welcome back to the Mark Sterry Music Podcast, episode 27, last week's gigs wrap-up. Wednesday, I played a solo show at Lisa's Place in Carver, Minnesota. Missed Toots and Tanya working that night, but the go-home tacos were still excellent. Thursday, due to the amazing weather we've been having, Mr. Brian K. Johnson and myself played our first outdoor patio show of the year at Lucky's 13 in Burnsville, Minnesota. Felt great to be outside jamming again. Going to be an excellent summer. Friday, Brian K. Johnson and myself rocked out on the patio at Lucky's 13 in Plymouth, Minnesota. It was my therapy dog, Copper's, first show at Lucky's, and it went great. Check out Facebook for photos. Thanks, as always, to the Stew's Warriors group for making those shows so much fun. Saturday, Brian, Keith, Johnson, and myself jammed outside on the patio at Vanelli's in Forest Lake, Minnesota. Such a cool outdoor setup there. Thanks to all our friends for coming out. It's crazy busy. Looking forward to many more shows there this summer. Upcoming shows. Wednesday, April 20th, 2016. I'll be performing a solo show at Pub 42 in New Hope, Minnesota from 8 to 10 p.m. Thursday, April 21st, 2016, Brian K. Johnson and myself will be rocking out at Lucky's 13 in Burnsville, Minnesota from 4 to 7 p.m. Friday, April 22nd, 2016, I'll be playing a private show at Summerbee Golf Club in Byron, Minnesota from 6 to 9 p.m. Guest this week is part one of three with an icon in the Twin Cities, Minnesota music scene, Pat Hayes of the Lamont Cranston Blues Band. He's a huge influence on me and many other musicians, and it was an honor to spend time with him. Thanks to Rico Anderson for the hookup. Pat and I discuss harmonica playing, Muddy Waters, Driving Junior Wells and Buddy Guy to Stillwater Prison, and also the origins of the Lamont Cranston hit, Upper Mississippi Shakedown. Enjoy the conversation. Mr. Pat Hayes of the Lamont Cranston Blues Band. Welcome to the Mark Sterry Music Podcast. You are a hero of mine. Thank you so much for letting me in your home and interview you. 
Uh, we've had an awesome time so far hearing about Pat's fishing trips that are superhuman, but he's got photos to, to back it up. Uh, this, uh, he's an amazing artist, and we're just talking about uh, the blues harmonica. We thought we'd hit record, and we're just talking about the beginnings of Lamont Cranston. So how are you doing today well, there, Pat? doing good. Thank you. Real good. Um, we're just talking about throat vibratos. And, um, well, what he means is this, that wavering sound. Yeah. But he was asking me how to do that. I went, well, you just got to do this <laughs> and then put the harp up and you got it. <laughs> yep. Heck yeah. Um, so you're talking how, when you were starting up, you, you're talking about in the, the Lamont Crance is starting in 69, but you'd started in 65. Yeah, we saying. started, well, we st- I was down in the West Bank. I was I ran away from home in '67. I was down the summer of love. I was I wanted to go to Haight Ashbury, but um, I found out there was a hippie scene right here in Minneapolis on the West Bank. So I ran away from home and I was hanging out in the West Bank in '67. And I w- always kind of liked to sing and stuff. And my brother had a little band going, psychedelic band out in Hamill. He was doing yardbirds and stones and and animals and that kind of stuff. And I was kind of into the folky thing, like I was into Dylan, of course, and and Donovan and stuff, and um, those guys would toot on the harp a little bit, you know, so I was tooting on the harp a little bit. And I found myself at the coffee house one night, and the guy said, hey, get your harp up and come play with me, and I was playing with a folky guy, and he gave me $5, and I'm like, wow, that $5 then was like 3000 is to me now. And so I wound up keeping doing that. And I would play with the jug band. There would be a jug band that went around the West Bank. Um, and it wasn't, it was so informal that you didn't get nervous, you know what I mean? Like the first time you're on stage, you're going to get nervous. But in this situation, you didn't because everybody was in it. And Kerner was there and um, some of these guys, Dave Ray and those kind of guys. and Judy Larson, Bill Hinckley were probably doing it. There'd be a banjo and a, and a wash tub and... I'd be tooting on the harp, and then they passed the mic around. I was going to the coffee house, and they passed the mic around. It came to me, and they, he's pretty good on the harp, you know. So, <laughs> so I figured, well, see, I was trying to be a visual artist, a, a painter, and I was into far-out styles. I wasn't making any money, of course. So I started making a few bucks playing uh, with a folky scene around the West Bank. But at the meantime, my brother back home, he was running his psychedelic band, sort of rock band. And I would go out to visit him, and then I'd go sing with them. They were called the Moon. And basically, that turned into the Cranstons in 69. We, well, see, what happened was I, we were doing bluesy style. I always loved that bluesy style, but I didn't know where this music was coming from. I knew it from the Stones, the Animals, Yardbirds. I always liked, like, I'm a man, and the Stones were doing Little Red Rooster and those kind of songs. There's something about that music that I really liked. And when I was a kid, of course, I loved Little Richard and, and Fats Domino, the bluesy type guys. So one day, I, fuck, I was with my friend who wanted to be a harmonica player. He, wanted to, he said he wants to make catcalls on a harmonica. And we go downtown to the record store. And there's the Howlin' Wolf with this harmonica sticking out of his mouth. It's called More Real Folk Blues by Howlin' Wolf. And he said, oh, look at this guy, Howlin' Wolf. He's got a harp sticking out of his mouth. we got to get this. So we got it, and we went home. He didn't like it. He gave it to me. 
that's what started it all for me because then I realized that the Stones, see, because he was doing these songs by Willie Dixon too, same ones the Stones were doing. So then I put two and two together. I said, hey, this music is right, right here in America and it's done way better because they're the original guys. So I started digging up Muddy and BB and Albert King and Otis Rush. I started going to the record store and digging out all these blues records and just opened up this whole world. And right then we quit our psychedelic man and we figured we'd better learn how to play this music like it's supposed to be played. So we took a break from playing and we uh, woodshedded for a long time. And then we came out with Lamont Cranston Band. And that was like 69. And there were a bunch of friends of mine from the West Bank and mixed in with a couple guys from my hometown. So... Um, we put together this band. We had a jam one night, and uh, it sounded so good. We said, we got to put together a band, and uh, that's what happened. So for a while there, we didn't have a name, and we kind of figured, well, we'll call ourselves Lamont Cranston because I had a friend who was into comic books, and the, Lamont Cranston's The Shadow. Yeah. And he was into he was a hippie guy. He's into, way into comic books. and I wasn't into it, but the name sounded okay to me, so I said, okay. The Shadow weighs the forces of law and order, is in reality Lamont Cranston, wealthy young man about town. Years ago in the Orient, Cranston learned a strange and mysterious secret, the hypnotic power to cloud men's minds so they cannot see him. Cranston's friend and companion, the lovely Margot Lane, is the only person who knows to whom the voice of the invisible shadow belongs. Today's drama, The Phantom of the Lighthouse. But um, then we went and got a few gigs. We'd play parties and stuff and keggers and out in the country. But then we came down and played down the West Bank at, at hippie love-ins and stuff. <laughs> then we finally got a gig at the Triangle Bar. And uh, that was wild because there, at that time, there wasn't any real electric blues bands. I mean, there was Kerner and Glover. They weren't electric. There was... Um, Soul bands, of course, and but there was no real electric blues band except for uh, Mojo Buford, who was playing mostly around the black uh, clubs. And uh, when we came in, we auditioned at the Triangle Bar on a Wednesday night. He said, you can come up and play for an hour. And uh, I didn't want to go down there because I was afraid of that scene. Yeah. You know, I was a Donovan Peace Nature guy. <laughs> I did not like the bar. I thought, this is bad. This is not good. People are drinking there. And <laughs> so I was kind of scared. But we went down there and we started to play, and, and they, people went nuts. They said, they ran across the street to the Viking. They said, get over to the triangle. They ran down to the, to the uh, one on the corner, the 400, wow. and said, get over the triangle. So within 15 minutes, the triangle got packed. And the, everybody was going crazy. They'd never seen nothing like this. Do you happen to remember what was on the set list that night? It was probably Help Me was probably one. Um, got my mojo working, probably checking on my baby by Sonny Boy Williamson. Hoochie Coochie Man, of course, Sweet Home Chicago, all the classics. Yeah. All the classics. And we were trying to learn those. And, you know, I was up there 18 years old. I was jumping around like a Mexican jumping bean. <laughs> and Bob Bingham was the best guitar. You know, he was a really good guitar player. He's the one that, that you know, asked that for us to get that gig down there. 
And, of course, they loved it, and they, and they said, we want you back every Wednesday night. And so he, the boss man pulls out a drawer of phony IDs and hands me one, hands this other guy one, <laughs> says, whip these out if the cops ever ask you. Wow. And every Wednesday night got crazier and crazier down there. Wow. And you said there was, at the time, very few blues bands in, no, in the No, there area. was, no. There wasn't electric, no, not electric blues bands, but there was some starting around the same time. There was Mill City Blues Band that was really good. That was Roy Allstad, three-piece. It was kind of like Cream. When I saw them, I thought they were like Cream. A uh, great singer, like a fantastic singer. He was like a, um, Stevie Winwood. And then his style of guitar playing was awesome. It's like you mixed Led Zeppelin with John Lee Hooker, and it was, it was awesome. Then the uh, Barking Ducks um, was starting around that time. Willie Murphy was a couple years later. Willie and the Bees were like a year later. And um, those are the, th the three or four that started. And you were asking me, you know, how I knew, ran into all these other harp guys. Well, see, in those days, you didn't have a million blues bands in each town. There'd be two or three in each town. And we were pretty much aware of each other. Because when you started to go, if you started to make a record or you started to go on the road, you were now exposed to other blues bands through the country. And we were all at that time uh, trying to help each other. We weren't in competition. We weren't trying to blow each other away. We're, you know, the way I was looking at was, I love this music and I want to turn people onto this music because they deserve to, to enjoy this like I'm enjoying it. Like when I put that Holland Wolf on record on, I was like in seventh heaven. And I'm thinking, i got to get my friends to get turned on to this stuff. And so my trip was, the more blues guys, the better, if they're good. Um, that's why when Kim Wilson came up into town, I was so happy to have him here because he just helped the cause of the, the whole thing. He didn't have anywhere to live when he came into town. I said, well, you can come and live with me. So he lived at my house for probably three, four months before he got his own place with Larry. Him and my brother Larry shared a place. He stayed for a couple, three years, and then he went and started the um, Fabulous Thunderbirds. Down in Texas, right? Yeah. Well, he was a great harp player from the minute he came into town. He was already as, almost as good as he is now. He was great. He was fantastic. So, but I wasn't afraid of him or, or wasn't always going to blow me away because there's room for everybody. You know, he'd, he'd do the caboose. Back in those days, you'd do the caboose like once a month or once every six weeks. But you would do Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. You'd do four nights in a row. Wow. What band would, did he have then? Called Ace of Straits and Shuffles. That was Bob Bingham that went to California and got him. See, Bob was mad at gotcha. me. Bob was real mad at me for firing him. <laughs> so he went to California and got the best harp player in the world to come back here and blow me away. But I was happy to have him here. It didn't hurt nothing. And we had some fantastic jams together, too. Yeah. Did, you, did he uh, teach anything? Any licks or anything? No, he wouldn't teach me stuff, no. Uh, he wouldn't show me too many tricks, uh, but just being by being around him and, and you know the influence that he was, he had just being around him, you know. Studying a lot of blues guys, um, 
from Big Walter to whomever, it seems like the tradition back then was not to share your secrets. Right. No. Why yeah. is that? Because the harp is a, is a unique instrument. It's almost like your little set of vocal cords. So each guy has his own little tricks he's doing. And he don't want to, if you share it with somebody else, they might, they might beat you to the punch and get the hit before you did or something like, something like that. It's just stupid. It was like with Mojo. See, when I started out, we, we discovered there was a blues guy right here in Minneapolis, Lazy Bill Lucas, the old black piano player from Chicago. Well, he's from uh, Cape Girardeau, uh, I think in Missouri or one of those. So um, he's from the South, but he moved up here in the 60s, early 60s and hanging out with Mojo. But he was real friendly. He was always be playing the coffee houses. And so we got to meet him. We're 17. I mean, it's 18. I mean, I look like Rod Stewart. I had the velvet suit and the big shag. Huh. But I was into funky blues. So some of these friends of Lazy Bills, they were the flannel shirt, uh, work boot, funky jean uh, folkies. They kind of frowned upon us, you know, because we're coming around, we're like English rock stars, you know, <laughs> and they kind of frowned upon us. And uh, so there was a little tension there, but, but Lazy Bill always had his uh, door open for us guys. And he would, uh, we'd go over there and start hanging around with them. And uh, he was able to, to say things, you know, in a sentence to, you know, that would, he'd say everything like in one sentence. B.B. King ain't funky no more. <laughs> You know, F. B.B. King, he, he ain't funky no more. He goes, you, you white boys play too fast. He goes, you white boys play too fast and too loud. He said, you got to be mellow and funky. Mellow and funky. He said, Bill, can we jam? And he said, okay, so he let us jam. And he taped everything. <clears throat> it was funny. Uh, those tapes are still around somewhere. Wilson would come over and play, and he's, he thought Wilson was really good. And we'd go over there, and, and there'd be Big Joe Williams would be over there. And then we'd go over there, and Buddy Guy and Junior Wells are over there. And I'm 18, what? 19 years old. Yeah. They all knew him from Chicago. So when they came into town, they'd go visit Lazyville. <laughs> and you'd walk in, and there'd be, you know, you never know who's going to be in there. We went there one time, and Buddy Guy and Junior Wells were in there. And they said, We're, we want to visit our friend in jail up here, up in Stillwater Prison. There's a guy named Pat Hare. Who a big hit was I'm gonna murder my baby, and that's what he did, and he wound up in <laughs> Stillwater Prison. I'm gonna murder my baby. Yes, I'm gonna murder my baby. I just thought you'd like to know, George. Yes, I'm gonna murder my baby. Don't do nothing but cheat and lie. And he was buddies with we brought, Buddy Guy we and brought Junior them, Wells. Yeah, we drove him up there on a cold January day. And Junior Wells just looked out the window with a mean look on his face and did not say one word. But Buddy Guy was real friendly to us. But Junior Wells did not say one word. We brought him up there and we waited for two, three hours before they got done. And then they, then they came and we brought him back. We wound up playing in Stillwater Prison one time and had... Pat Hare play with us, come up and jam with us. He had a band in there called Sounds Incarcerated. <laughs> but most of the other guys were, were 
were uh, into soul music, you know, the latest latest hits and stuff. But we'd go over to Bill's house, and it was a lot of fun. He would uh, introduce us. He'd teach us how to play the blues right, hopefully, you know. And uh, the big one was Muddy Waters when we got to meet Muddy Waters. That was the big one. Where did you meet him at? There was a club on Lake Street called Silver Dollar. It's kind of down where the freeway crosses, <clears throat> where 35W crosses Lake Street, and a little bit east of there. There's a McDonald's over there now. There was a big ballroom there called Silver Dollar, and we uh, we played in there. And uh, they'd bring in big acts like Muscle White came in, and uh, they'd bring in Muddy Waters in. The Cranston's are open the show for Muddy Waters. And he, Lazy Bill's in the, they had a front bar that had the folky stage, like a solo solo stage. Well, Lazy Bill was in the front bar, and Muddy and us were in the big room. And Mojo Buford played harp for Muddy at that time. Well, downstairs, we go down after our, our set, and Lazy Bill's in there, in the room with Muddy Waters, just the two of them. And we go, this is our chance to meet Muddy Waters, oh my God. You know, because that guy is like, a, you know, the way he was, he's like a king. He's like the king of the blues, and he carried, wow. him, he carried himself very dignified and uh, so me and Bobo go in there we had tequila sunrises in our hands this was the 80s or this was it the 80s or 70s yeah it was 70s and we walked in with tequila sunrise and Bill goes let me have a sip of that boy and he goes taste terrible spit it all over Bob <laughs> right in front of Muddy Waters and he goes them Cranston's is pigs them Cranston's are pigs. Because <laughs> we went over to his house and we drank all his beer. <laughs> after that, he charged us 50 cents of beer after that. He says, Bill, you got any beer? He's like, 50 cents of beer, boy. Well, he told Muddy Waters. See, he when he had a few drinks, he'd get a little ornery, you know. And he, them Cranston's are pigs. And Muddy was just sort of laughed, you know. We're like, oh, my God. But I uh, we didn't really talk to him. There, was, there wasn't much to say to Muddy Waters. But we ran into him again at this, uh, when we were playing at the River Serpent in St. Paul. <clears throat> we opened the show for Muddy there, too. This time he came up. Well, after the show, it was probably 3 in the morning. You know, we could sit around that place all night if we wanted to. But he, he came up about 3 in the morning at 2.30 and uh, sat down at the bar with us. And... <laughs> We, Rico got a really good picture of him, and uh, our other friend goes, Muddy, what, what's a hoochie-coochie man? He goes, you know, you know. He poked him in the ribs, you know. And then it was time for them to go, and I was standing on the top of the veranda. This place was, I don't know if you know where the River Serpent was, it was in yeah. St. Paul, that little mm -hmm. island. And it was a really cool, tiny little island, this building in, on, under the bridge, you know. So you're surrounded by the river, and it was a full moon night. And I, I was way on the top veranda, and I was looking down in the parking lot and, and where the river was sparkling with the moonlight on it. And I saw Muddy Waters and um, Pine Top Perkins and another guy walking out to their car. And 
Muddy looked up at the moon. He went, and I went, oh, my God. If, you know, if what I seen right there was something I'd never forget. It was just blood-curdling, howling at the moon on the Mississippi River with the water sparkling with moonlight. And I just went, if he knew I was watching, he would have never done that because he carries himself real dignified. Yeah. Know? And I just would never forget that. I don't think I will either after that story. That'd make a nice painting that's for what, one of your paintings. That's in my book. See, I'm writing a book of all these people I ran into. Um, but we all, in those days, uh, we were all kind of in it together. We're in, in, a, in a cause. I think nowadays there's a lot more competition. Everybody's fighting to get you know, the top spot, and people stab each other in the back and stuff. Well, that didn't happen back in those days that much. Yeah. I went to the Ann Arbor Blues Festival in 1969, me and my buddy hitchhiked out there, and they were running the show that was running late, and the last guy was B.B. King. Well, Buddy Guy and Junior Wells were playing, and they wouldn't stop, and they were going past their, their time to stop, and we are cutting into B.B. King's stage time, and B.B. Uh, got really mad, and he grabbed Junior Wells. He said, uh, well, by the time B.B. got out there, he said, well, we're going to go over to this uh, college uh, hall over here and have a late night blues session tonight all night long for you people so we give you you know your money's worth and he said junior you're coming over junior come out here and junior sheepishly came out there but he or bb king held him in his, his arm lock a headlock he said you're coming aren't you he goes yeah i'll be coming <laughs> <laughs> he was mad at him i heard him hollering between the break, you know, you sound like a bull moose over there. BB did? Yeah. I could wow. hear him hollowing, you know, 100 yards away. One night, okay, well, I was in Chicago. Well, see, I was friends with, uh, I was roommates with Tom Davis. And Davis and Franken were a comedy team that, you know, Franken, our senator. I'm going to do a terrific show today, and I'm going to help people. Because I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. He was um, a comedy team with, with Davis, and they worked at Dudley Riggs. And they were huge Cranston fans. See, when they went out to, then they went out to start Saturday Night Live and be writers for them. Well, Saturday Night Live um, guys got to, that's how we got to know Aykroyd and Belushi and them. They really loved the Cransons. And so there was this movie that they were doing. Davis and Franken were doing a movie called Another Saturday Night, which kind of bombed. It was a story of a blues band, a Midwest blues band, and they're going to the caboose in St. Cloud, Minnesota. They, that's what they call this bar. They're going, they're going on a road trip and getting in a van. And uh, they were based on the Cransons, really. So they... They were doing shakedown in this place they called the Caboose. It was supposed to be a fictitious bar in, in St. Cloud. But they were going to record the soundtrack for this in Chicago, and they asked me and Bruce to come to Chicago to record this soundtrack and, uh, of shakedown. They wanted me on the harp and then Bruce on the piano, but they had other musicians to cover the rest of the stuff. So we go to the studio, we fly out there, and you're giving us a pretty good amount of money. And they're also licensing our song, giving us a lot of money to use our song. So uh, who's the producer? Captain Trips, Jerry Garcia. Driving that train, how the coke 
watch your speed. He's sitting at the, he's sitting at the control board. <laughs> and we started to play a little bit, and he said, hey, you guys sound good. You're professionals. I'm going back to the hotel and watching my favorite movie, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. <laughs> um, and then, so we, the gig, well, you go ahead. I'm taking I was going to say, uh, Mr. Pat Hayes, uh, this show can only be a half hour long. Do you mind doing oh, part oh. two? Can I ask you a few more questions? Oh, sure. Okay. Uh, so I always do a story behind the song segment every week. And so I was going to ask you, what's the story behind Upper Mississippi Shakedown? Well, um, there was a time like back in probably 80, 1980, 81, where I was like burnt out. I was fried. And I talked to Bonnie Raitt. And I said, I'm just trashed and fried. And she said, well, you can go stay at my beach house in Northern California. So... I didn't have my driver's license then, and I, I got one of those 30-day passes on the Greyhound bus. You pay 300 bucks and go wherever you want for 30 days, and I headed for San Francisco. And I went up the coast. She said, I'll have the neighbors come and give you the key to the cabin. You can stay in the cabin as long as you want. They gave me the, it met me, gave me a key to an a oceanfront cabin on a big ridge overlooking the Navarro River and the ocean, where you could see whales every day right from your living room. And I sat there chilling out. I figured maybe I'll stay out here and never go home. Um, she said, you stay as long as you want. I, I wound up staying about two weeks. Her brother was hanging around there, and he, he showed me around. But she had a guitar sitting there. After a while, I picked up a guitar, and I went, I said, no, I got an idea for a song here. You know, I think I'm going to call this Upper Mississippi Shakedown. After I got my marbles screwed on again, I said, I got a recording contract. I better get my butt home and make that record. And I started going, I picked up her guitar, and I just came up with this lick. And I started putting together the song. It's going to be called Upper Mississippi Shakedown. I said, it's going to rock the caboose. and I'm going to write a song that's going to rock the caboose. And uh, and all our fans back home, you know, is going to really like this. So I got on the bus and I went back home. And I said, let's get in the studio and start cutting this tune. And we went in to the rehearsal space and I said, I've only got this thing halfway done. And Bruce is a really good songwriter. And I said, Bruce, help me write this. He came up with the middle part where it, where it changes keys or yep. goes to C. He came up with that part. Um, see, I would have never thought of that. And he also finished the helped me finish the lyrics. So then we had a song. And the first time we played it was First Avenue, and people looked at us like we were crazy. They looked at us like we were a bunch of freaks. They did not like it the first time we played that song. They just like, what? You know? <laughs> but it took a while for them, for them people to get used to it, and then they really liked it. And, of course, that's, that was our biggest song. It still is, and I still like that song. Wow. That's a spectacular story there, Pat. Um Wow. Well, Mr. Pat Hayes, thank you for being on the Mark Stereo Music Podcast. Please stick around for part two. Thank you there, Pat.
Thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of the Mark Sterry Music Podcast. Hope you've enjoyed the program. We'll see you back here for a new podcast about life and times in the live and local music scene each and every Tuesday, if not before, on iTunes, SoundCloud, and most other places podcasts are available. Also, if you get a chance, please go check out some live music somewhere. It could be a great and worthwhile experience. Life is short. Go have some fun. Till next time. Down by the river tonight.